Jude, contend earnestly for the faith. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. That word contend means this, fight for the faith. Agonize for the faith. Every generation has a responsibility to contend for the faith, and this is our generation. This is our time. Jude, as you know, is the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus. The half-brother of Jesus. Jude was slow to be accepted in the canon of Scripture, and it, was, it wasn't accepted until about 350 A.D., and there's a reason for that. Because in Jude, verses 9 and verse 14, it, it, it talks about two apocryphal books. Apocryphal means doubtful, that these were not part of the canon. They had things that were wrong in them, but yet quoted because they had some truth to it. So they weren't accepted until late. Uh, these are also called the pseudepigrapha, the pseudepigrapha, pseudo-false pigrapha writings. These are the false writings. And there's a plethora of those that I'll mention in just a second. Oftentimes I'm asked, why wasn't this book part of the Bible? Why wasn't this book part of the Bible? And it wasn't until 367 A.D. That, that all of the canon of Scripture came together. And people say, why did it take so long? Well, for the first 300 years, the church was running for its life. But when you're running for your life, you don't have time to have councils sitting down to try to determine what is Scripture and what isn't Scripture. So, why quote the Assumption of Moses in the, the book of Enoch? Again, because there are some truths in it that the Holy Spirit used, but not entirely true. Not entirely true. Didn't, didn't, didn't meet the requirements of the canon. Whom was this written to? It is interesting. This is written from Israel, from the land, to the people in what is called the diaspora, or the dispersion. These people are running for their lives under Roman persecution, and they've been distributed all throughout the Roman Empire. And the main purpose of the book is to tell the people that are being dispersed, who are now being inundated by false teaching coming at them from every direction, to contend for the faith. Jude is the epistle that tells believers how to combat false teaching. And listen to this. I, I like this statement. Jude is an epistle that stresses mercy and rescue. Believers are to do all they can to save those polluted and contaminated by false teaching. We're to do everything we can for those who are being deceived. Everything that we can. But remember, ultimately, it is God that changes the heart. It is God that takes the scales off. It is God does the miracle in, in, in the internal part of a being. It is God. Now, thinking of Enoch and the Book of Assumption and that sort of thing, why are other books not included in, this, in the Scripture? Let me give you a list of these. There's the Testament of Hezekiah. There was a book of Hezekiah. It just happened to be a pseudopigrapha. There is, a, there is a apocryphal book of Hezekiah. And there's the vision of Isaiah, the secrets of Enoch, uh, there's the words of Baruch. There's the odes to Solomon. There's the testament of Adam, the testament of Abraham, the apocalypse of Ezra. And it goes on and on and on and on. And these never met the criteria 
for being part of the canon. They were, they were written by false authors with a false premise. They actually span the time of about 200 B.C. to about 300 A.D. So gotquestions.org says this, talking about the, the, the canon of Scripture and the pseudepigrapha and why these books weren't accepted. They were written under false names with a false pretense. Secondly, they contain historical errors. And thirdly, they contain outright heresy. Now, see if you can recognize this heresy that I'm gonna, that's going to be mentioned here. This heresy is this. It's written in the Acts of John, which is an apocryphal book, a pseudepigraphal book. Jesus is present as spirit who left no footprints when he walked, who could not be touched, and who did not really die on the cross. Now, this would be written by the Gnostics. We learned about the Gnostics. This is exactly what they believed. Now, how were the books of the Bible determined to be genuine? That's a great question. I mean, did somebody just say, hey, I feel this should be it, or I feel this should be it? No, there was a whole system that, that was developed. How do we know we have the real deal? I want you to realize this. Men did not determine which books were to be Scripture. That was determined by God when he chose the person to pen it. Remember, all Scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed in 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Peter 1.20, above all, I want you to understand, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God spoke to the hearts of people, and they penned what God wanted them to write. Now, some people have a problem with this. As a matter of fact, more and more people are having a problem with this. Look at if God, who created everything from the vastness of space down to the most microscopic level at the cell level, you don't think that that God with all of those organizational skills can't get a reliable word to your people? Of course he can. This is, this is, this is baby stuff to him. But people have a problem with that, a huge problem. So, the early church councils simply recognized what God already had deemed as Scripture, and they had a criteria that they used. Well, what criteria did they use? It's called the canon, or the standard, or the norm. You had to meet this standard. You had to re meet this norm in order to be part of Scripture. What were they? For a book to be canonical, it had to ha meet the following standards. Written by a spokesperson for God. Had to be a prophet or an apostle or closely related like Mark or Luke or Jude or James, the brother of Jesus, okay? It had to be confirmed by an act of God. It had to tell the truth. Isn't that something? It couldn't have some misspeakings in it. It demonstrated the power of God, and it had to be accepted by the people of God universally that bore witness with their spirit, this is the truth. The pseudepigrapha did not match all of those. Some of them were, were, were interesting historically, but they, they were not truthful all the way through and had to be rejected. So, starting in verse 1 and 2, remember our theme is to contend for the faith. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, is contending for the faith. Contenders must know you are safe with Jesus. You are a contender for the faith if you're born again of the Spirit. If Jesus Christ lives within you, you are a contender for the faith in this culture. This is your time. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and the brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, 
and preserved in Jesus Christ. Notice the triad. There are 14 triads in the book of Jude. 14 threesomes. That he, that he, this is the first one. The next one is mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Every generation, again, must contend for the faith. And I want to encourage you, never cave to the whims of the culture. Never cave to the whims of the culture. There's a cultural war out there. And again, Jude, you know what his name really was? Judas. And so the English writers changed his name to Jude to not confuse him with the, with the one who was the betrayer of Jesus Christ. Again, half-brother of Jesus, but he calls himself, notice, he doesn't play on this, hey, Jesus was my brother. He was my half-brother. Look at me. I was close to Jesus. He did not do that at all, did he? He calls himself a bondservant. Remember, we're very familiar with this name, a doulos. The will of the person, the will of the bondservant is consumed with the will of the master. Oh, that's what we want to be, consumed with the will of the master. Remember this, Jude was not consumed with the will of the master until after the resurrection. Then he became a believer. Prior to that, he and his brothers, what do they think Jesus was? They thought he was nuts. In, 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 in Mark chapter 3.21, they said this, he is out of his mind. He is out of his mind. And again, his brother is James, but that isn't the James that were the disciples. There are two James that were disciples. James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus. These were the actual disciples. But James is the, ha is the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James. Jude became a believer again after the resurrection. And I'll tell you, after the resurrection, he was all in. He was, there wasn't a tippy-toe Christianity for him. I think my brother might have been the Messiah. Oh, no. He was in, all in, 100% sold out to Jesus Christ. Jude is one of those messianic epistles, again, writ written to deal with the needs of the Jewish people who are being persecuted and spread all throughout the Roman world. The first triad we see is to those called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. And again, it is written to those who are being persecuted. We don't understand what that means here in America. See, we think persecution is having to wait five seconds at a red light. That's persecution. Hey, look, at when you're being persecuted for real, you need encouragement. And encouragement number one is this. You are special to God. Remember that. No matter what happens in your life, you are special to God. No matter what anybody else tells you, you are special to God. You've been called by God. That's special. You've been sanctified by God, set apart by God the Father. That is special. And you have been preserved in Jesus, who is God. Preserved is the word tarot. It comes from the root teros. It means to guard as like a warden, to keep your eye on, to hold firmly, to watch over. Jesus is watching over you. Isn't that great to know? That's great to know. Jesus is watching over you. Encouragement number two, again, you are special to God. Mercy, peace, love be multiplied to you. Not added. Multiplied to you. And that's much needed in persecution. That's much needed in the chaos of life. Every one of us in some point in your life, we'll have some sort of chaos that's going to be overwhelming. And you're going to need the mercy of God, the peace of God that passes all understanding. 
You're going to need his love. Look at these people lost everything. Throughout the world, when you become a Christian, very likely you will lose everything. People lost their homes. They lost their jobs. They lost their families. Their families hated them because they became Christians. They lost their friends. They lost everything to follow Jesus. Losing everything to follow Jesus in America does not happen. Does not happen. You might have have a little pressure in your families, but you're not ostracized like they are in the rest of the world. You know know what suffering in the West is? Oh, I have to get to church by 10 o'clock and I got to get up. Oh, I've suffered for Jesus. Just get, yeah. Suffer for Jesus. But in the rest of the world, folks, it is the norm to lose everything to follow the master. And now when this happens, when you are persecuted, it's good to know that God preserves you. That God loves you. He has his eye on you. He's holding on to you. Sometimes that's the only way you make it through the mess, is that you realize Jesus is holding on to you. Hear the words of Jesus in John 17, 11. He's watching over you. You are special to God. He's speaking to his disciples in John 17, 11. He says this, I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them. Keep them. That's that word tarot. Keep them in your name, in the name which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Oh, keep them. Keep your eye on them, Father. I'm going away. You keep your eye on them. William Barclay says this, The Christian is never alone. Do you believe that? You are never alone. What does it say in in Scripture? You are, he will never, ever, 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 never, 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 five times it says that in Hebrews. Never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. You are never alone with Jesus. Christ is always the sentinel, the guard for your life, and your companion of your way, because you are special to God. You are his child. And this is good to know when your world is caving in. It's good to know that mercy, peace, and love are multiplied unto you. God knows where you are in the mess of your life, and he is with you multiplied. When a person experiences loss, and we all will, when we experience loneliness, and that will happen to each one of us at some point in our lives, when we feel like no one cares, Jesus cares and is with you. Multiplied peace and love. Contenders in the chaos know you are special to God. You are special to God. Verse 3, contenders must know when to change course. So you get your life all planned out. You think you're going this way, and you think you're going this way, and God says, oh, no, you're going this way. Be ready to change course. Verse 3, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to all the saints. Now again, every generation must contend for the faith. Every one of us, right from the beginning of this whole thing. And we've all made our plans, haven't we? And I think it's good to make plans. It's good to have have a little road map kind of placed out in your life. I think I'm going this way, but make sure you're saying, I think I'm going this way, because you don't know when that thing's going to turn. Be prepared. But remember, God reserves the right to change the course of your life. God is the one who knows what is best. Watch what happened. You know, Paul went on missionary journeys. 
And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was fervent for God. And notice how God changed his course in Acts chapter 16, verse 6 through 10. He was going through Phrygia in the region of Galatia. And then he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go where he wanted to go, go where he thought he was supposed to go. That was in Asia. And he came to Mysiah, and he tried to go down to Bithia, but the Spirit did not permit him. So passing by Mysiah, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul by night. It was the, a man from Macedonia. He says, come over here to Macedonia and help us. And Paul went that way. He changed direction. He didn't just keep pushing in the direction he thought he should go. He changed direction as the Spirit of God led him. That's the point. That is the message here. Proverbs 16.9 says this. In his heart, a man plans his course. Oh, but the Lord determines his steps. You can have all the plans you want, but be ready to change course because you don't know what lies ahead. Jude had to change course. He wanted to write, a, write about our common salvation, which is a wonderful topic, a needed topic about our common salvation. And his heart was right. His, his desires were right. But he had a course change. The Spirit of God spoke to him and changed his course. Listen, the principle is this. When God changes course, don't fight it. When God changes course, don't fight it. Don't fight it, especially when it's unexpected. Don't become resentful. Go with it because Father knows best. Don't become resentful. Father knows best. And and, and remember this. It's not about me. The Christian life is about him, not about me. I get a lot of benefit out of it because it's about him, but I want to be subservient to him. He is the master. I am the servant. I go where he tells me to go. I do what he tells me to do. I've been bought with a price. He has the right to direct my life. That's the way it goes. Now, Paul changed course. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a shocking surprise. When that light shines in, in Acts chapter 9, 3, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I want you to notice, when the church is persecuted, it is the same as persecuting Jesus. It's his church. Why are you persecuting me? And his life changed course. He went from a Jesus hater to a Jesus lover. And he became a Christian himself, fervent. Jonah had a similar journey. People doubt this all the time. You really believe in Jonah? Do you really believe that he was thrown into the water and swallowed by a fish? Yes, I do. Why? Because Jesus said so. He refers to Jonah. I have no problem with Jonah. You know what it's called? It's called a miracle. (laughs) It's unexplainable by human terms. It's a miracle. What did Jonah want to do? He he, He was told to go to Nineveh. Those awful Assyrians are in Nineveh. They don't deserve to be saved. I don't want to go there. I'm going to Tarshish. I'm not going to listen to God. What happened? Storm. Ship is going down. The guys on the ship cast lot, and it points at Jonah. And what do they do to Jonah? Jonah says, throw me overboard. It's my fault. That was altruistic, wasn't it? Throw me overboard. (laughs) They throw him overboard. He gets swallowed by this fish. He gets puked up, literally vomited up on shore. And then God says again, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. (laughs) What do you think Jonah did that time? Oh, yes. I have no problem with going to Nineveh. 
I don't want any more of that stuff in the fish's guts for three days. Yes. Folks, Judah's writing about apostates. He's writing about satanic counterfeits that, are, that come into the church, leading people away, wanting to change the course of your life. And we are to contend earnestly for the faith, to fight for the faith, to agonize for the faith, and do not cave in to the counterfeits. They look great. They sound great. They look like the real deal. The counterfeit $100 bill, you cannot detect it with your eyes. It takes somebody really skilled to be able to detect it. They're hard to spot. It's hard to spot a good counterfeit. And remember, Satan's messengers can be hard to spot. They can disguise themselves. The, the, the most famous verse for this that we've been through a plethora of times is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. You're familiar with it. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He looks like the real deal, but he's not. These other, and then it says the ministers. The ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Satan, as an, as an angel of light, ministers looking like ministers of righteousness. Oh, you have to be discerning. You have to be discerning to catch these people. In a world that's running away from God, that's sprinting away from the truth, there are counterfeits galore out there. Counterfeits galore. Truth has lost its meaning, and that this relative truth, this quasi-truth, has infiltrated the church as never before. It has infiltrated the church as never before, where the church now is mirroring the world looking much, much more like the world than the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And believers must contend for the faith. Look, at Second Peter was talking about false teachers. First, second, and third John were talking about false teachers. Be prepared. Be ready. Be ready for the... And Jude is contending for the faith with the false teachers. The false teachers have been around all from the beginning, from the very beginning. But I think in this epoch of time, it's exacerbated, again, because of dissemination of information. You have the Internet, you have Facebook, you have all kinds of avenues that falsehood can come into your life. We're heretofore that people did not have. Did not have. There must be no, tr no retreat, no surrender to the compromised life, none. Look, we're to stay on the straight path. We are to enter by the narrow gate, stay on the straight path. Don't wander in the no man's land. You know what's in no man's land? Mines. Okay? Stay on this path. You get off the path. Landmine here, landmine here, landmine here, landmine here. You decide you're going to wander. Boom. Mess of life. I want me to go over here. Wander. Boom. Your life is in another mess. Another landmine. Stay on the path. How long does it take us to learn? How many landmines do you have to have? How much hurt do you have to go through before you finally get to the end of yourself and say, Lord, I'm staying on the path. I don't have to be puked up on the shore like Jonah was. I'm staying on the path. Yeah. No retreat, no, re no surrender. Contenders, be flexible. Be ready for God to change your course. And finally, verse 4. Contenders must know this, and I think this is the absolute essential. Contenders must know sound doctrine. Must know sound doctrine. Verse 4. 
For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at we are to every generation has to contend for the faith. We have a particular difficult obstacle to overcome in this culture. When the government has been given over, when the media has been given over, when the schools have been given over, when every part of the culture has been given over, you have a tough job. But we're not called to be cowards. We're not called to cower in a corner. We are told to bring this message of truth to people. That is our job. That is our calling. Now, the question is this. How in the world do certain men creep in unnoticed? What are you talking about? How can they ever come into a church unnoticed? Bear with me. People don't know sound doctrine. When you take this out, anything can come in. Anything can come in. The counterfeits, again, are hard to spot. In the past, we talked about elders being a protector for the church. We're responsible. We have our eyes out, watching. But also, you are to be a what? A Berean. So you're watching who? You're watching whoever's doing the teaching. You're watching me, <laughs> making sure what I say is truth, is truth. That would, that's our protection. But the greatest protection for all of us, all of us, is that we are ingrained in sound doctrine. Those who know the truth of the word will not fall prey to counterfeits. They will not be easily deceived. You might not be able to spot them exactly, but you know something is off, that your spirit does not bear witness with what's going on here. And you got that little Holy Spirit thing that goes up in the back, and you say, oh, i got to check this out. Check it out. Hear John MacArthur on discernment today. He says this, Whole churches have have shifted their focus from the clear teachings of Scripture to the felt need of sinners. They want to make church service comfortable, non-confrontational. As a result, the messages they champion are theologically weak. And the people they serve are doctrinally naive. Those churches are defenseless against error. It can sneak in. can sneak in. He goes on to say this. The recent trend among evangelicals is to minimize the importance of doctrine. Those in this camp argue that biblical clarity is divisive and unloving. Can you believe that? It is divisive and unloving to teach the truth of Scripture. To them, it puts up walls, lacks humility, and hinders unity. He again says this next statement. As part of its contemporary evangelistic strategy, the church has abandoned its commitment to the power of Scripture. There's power in the Scripture and become preoccupied with its image, how the church looks in the community. And in order to reach the cultures, become like the culture. Instead of countercultures, become like the culture. And because they're like the culture, they are fodder for deception. Fodder for deception. And this has happened all over the West. This isn't just in America. It's in Australia. It's in England, where the church is now down to a paltry 2 or 3%. Christians, born-again Christians in England. That's coming to America, folks, as these generations deteriorate and apostasy increases. It's coming to our shores. When the Bible is taken out, deception comes in. The Bible is taken out, 
deception comes in. That's the facts. Now think about our churches, how that has happened, but I want you to think about something else. Think about the universities that were established in this nation. Do you know that the whole Ivy League, Princeton, Columbia, Harvard, Yale, William & Mary, Dartmouth, they're all Ivy League colleges. They were all built upon training ministers to take the gospel to the world, and something crept in and changed the mission of those universities. And now they are as liberal as liberal can be. Anti-God. What a tragedy. This has happened to universities, this has happened to denominations, and now it's happening to local churches. Local churches. The apostasy, the falling away is rampant, and it is growing greater as we grow closer to the end. Remember, one of the signs in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is the apostasy, the apostasia. It is the falling away from the faith and having a make-believe faith, a feel-good faith, a feel-good faith. A Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson, says this on being crept in. To slip in secretly as if by a side door. Someone has crept into these universities, someone has crept into these denominations, and someone has crept into these churches. And where are the Bereans? Where are the elders? Where are those with sound doctrine that say, no, stop, this is wrong. This is wrong. It's not congruent with the Word of God. Where are they? Where are they? See, you take the Bible out. And there's a slow fade. Something changed the course of these inferences. Compromise here. It starts with a little compromise. A little compromise here. A little compromise here. Oh, that's not such a big deal. Let's just go along. We don't get all these people upset about this. A little compromise. What has crept in? It's this. It is a challenge to an errancy of Scripture. That is what has crept in. Genesis 3.1, it started right at the beginning with Satan, has God thus said. And that has permeated everything since then. He's always challenging Scripture. Has God thus said. When you compromise Scripture, get ready for the dominoes to fall. Hit one, and what happens? They all go down. And I want to give you an example of what has happened in the church. The first domino to fall is this. First domino is this. Doctrine will go out because people oftentimes relegate teaching or doctrine to boring. Oh, this is so boring. I can't believe it. I want to jump and shout or I want to feel really good about myself, but it's boring. If you get doctrine out, what comes in to fill a vacuum? The world comes in. And the world comes in and unbiblical beliefs are, are embraced. Now, give, let me give you an example. Example is this. Who can be a pastor? Not anybody can be a pastor. Oh, no, it has to be a calling. It has to be called by God. You have to meet the character qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. That's the biblical model. But what has happened? A lot of people have become pastors because the first domino fell. Think, it looks like it's easy. Hey, all you got to do is like do one sermon a week, and then you can play golf all week long. You hardly have to study because they're not going to hear you anyway, so just do whatever you want to do, and you have all this free time, and they pay you for this, and you get a lot of vacation. It's simple. It's simple. That's the first domino. 
And you know what happens? There's a cultural shift. There's a cultural shift, and the second domino falls. If it's good for men, then it has to be good for women. It has to be good for women. I do not believe in female pastors. I do not believe that is the biblical model. That is not the biblical model. The third domino to fall, hey, if women can be pastors, then who's next? Gay people can be pastors, and that's what's happening in churches. And if gay people can be pastors, as the culture shifts, transgenders can be pastors. You see the domino. You see the effect. A little compromise here, a little compromise there, and before you know it, the dominoes are falling, one after another. The last domino, the most pitiful, they're all pitiful. I don't know how you can put it on a scale of pitifulness, but this last one is where pastors and other religions amalgamate together. Remember, we call that syncretism, bringing all these religions together all under one umbrella. Chrislam. You can be a Christian and an Islam. You can have a Muslim and a Hindu and a, and a, and a, and a Christian, quasi-Christian, in the same pulpit. Hey, they're worshiping the same God. It's just a different way. Compromise, compromise, domino fall, domino fall. And that is what has happened today. The domino starts to fall with a little compromise. It starts with a little compromise. Don't believe the whole word of God. Tweak the word. Tweak it to suit you. What does God say? God says this, Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word which I have commanded you, nor take away from it. You have no right to add to the word. You have no right to change the word of God. Proverbs 3.30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Don't add to his word. It is the word of God. It is to be treasured. And the principle is this. Whenever a person has doctrinal problems, they will usually end up with some sort of moral compromise, some sort of moral problem. Another principle, when a person changes their view of Scripture, this will ultimately change their value system. The result is this. We see it in Scripture here. They deny the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, if you tweak the word, you will ultimately tweak who Jesus is. And if you tweak who Jesus is, you will tweak your destiny. You will seal your destiny. Can you see why contenders must know doctrine and know what you believe, know why you believe it? Remember Brandon House. I've mentioned this guy many times, the sequence of believing. You'll be familiar with this. Our theology or our doctrine determines our worldview. Our worldview will determine our values, and our values will ultimately determine our conduct, how we are acting in the culture around us. To change society, you must change a person's theology, their doctrine, what they believe is truth. That's the starting point. And it happens by preaching the gospel, which changes a person's theology and ultimately sets them on the right course, gets them off the errant course, gets them on the right course. Think about the pastor domino illustration. All who compromise the word have an errant worldview. Look at that list. The guy's doing it for a job. It's an easy job, wonderful job, terrific job. And then you have women doing it for a job. And then you have gay people doing it for a job. And then you have transgender. And then you're blending Chrislam and all that stuff. You have an errant world view. When you compromise this, 
It is an errant worldview. Nowhere in the scriptures do we see that the calling of a pastor is to create a church for those who hate church, to tweak the church to appeal to the world. On the contrary, the New Testament church is this. It's not about unbelievers, but about equipping those who believe. Let me say that again. We want unbelievers to come in to hear the word of God. But church is a sanctuary from the world, and we are here to boost one another up, to encourage one another, and then go into the world to bring people to Christ and have them come in and have teaching that solidifies their faith. William Still says this about a true shepherd's calling. It is to feed the sheep. The pastor is called upon to feed the sheep. That's the pastor's number one job. That feeding is guarding, guiding, protecting, leading. It has a whole bunch of ramifications to it. It's encouraged the sheep to go farther. There should be nutrition for the baby sheep, for the in-between sheep, for the mature sheep. All the sheep should be benefiting. That's a tough, that's a tough one to, to do right there. But all of them are to be benefiting. The pastor is called upon to feed the sheep. Now that might seem quite obvious, still says. He is called upon to feed the sheep, even if the sheep don't want to be fed. That happens. He is certainly not to become an entertainer of goats. Let goats entertain goats, and let them do it in goat land. You will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. And that is what has happened in the church today. Goats are not saved. Remember the sheep and the goats separating the true from the false. The goats are not the same. But to pander to the goats in Goatland is not the way the church has been constructed. Contenders must know doctrine. They must be able to teach the Scripture, hear the Scripture, be deep in the Scripture. Conclusion, contend for the faith. Jude says this, that apostasy can be subtle. It can be so undercover. That slipping things in and falling away, that gradual dominoes thing, it can be so hard to detect. To describe apostasy's entry into the church, in extra-biblical Greek, this is interesting, in extra-biblical Greek, the term describes the cunning craftiness of a lawyer who, through clever argumentation, infiltrates the minds of the courtroom officials and corrupts their thinking. The word literally means to slip by the side stealthily. We've already got that from A.T. Robertson. Jude says that it's rare that apostasy begins as an overt and easily detectable act. Instead, it looks, a, it looks a lot like a sneak attack. Under the cover, here it comes. Get ready for the dominoes to fall. Folks, we are living in a time of abject apostasy. Masses are abandoning the faith. You know so many Christians today and I think there, many of them are real Christian. They've been burned out on church. They're tired of the mamsy-pamsy stuff. And what do they do? They stay in their houses. And they try to get some food from the television. Because they've been to umpteen thousand different churches where they can't be fed anything. Or some of them are just abandoning the faith and going there because it's comfortable. Be in your living room. And what are we seeing today? Smoke and mirrors Christianity. And it's only possible when you have weak teaching. When you take the Bible out, it is only possible then. Smoke and mirrors Christianity will not work 
in a soundly grounded church. Like Jude, we must contend earnestly for the faith, fight for the faith, agonize for the faith. I've mentioned this person before in many different settings. His name is William Borden, and he contended for the faith. Briefly, William Borden was an heir to the Borden fortune. He had a calling to China that was overwhelming. His dad wanted him to be a businessman just like he was. Didn't want him to go into the missions. Wanted him to go to college. But while he was at college, he got Bible studies going. Thousands of people ended up going to these Bible studies at this Ivy League university. And he's preparing to go on the mission field. And he goes to Egypt to learn the language. And in Egypt, he contracts spinal meningitis. And he dies at the age of 25. When this news reached America of his untimely death, many thought, what a waste. Millionaire, wants to be a missionary, dies, and nothing is accomplished. It's not over. The question is this, was Borden's untimely death a waste? Not in God's perspective. As the story has it, prior to his death, Borden had written words in the back of his Bible. Underneath the words, he wrote, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. No reserves. In this context that I'm sharing here today, no reserves. Hold nothing back. Hold nothing back. No retreats to the comfort of the world. Contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. No retreats. If you're not retreating, which way are you going? Forward. You keep going forward. Forward. Press on towards the goal to win the prize. Contend for the faith. And his last words were these. At age 25, knowing that he was dying from meningitis, knowing that he wasn't going to make it to the mission field, knowing that he wasn't going to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish in life, he says, no regrets. I will give my life for my Savior. I have no regrets. I am contending for the faith until my last breath. Paul had his time. Jude had his time. William Borden had his time. And folks, guess what? We have our time. This is our time. This is our time. Who knows? Listen to this. Who knows what, what life can be impacted by you contending for the faith? This is our time, folks. Contend for the faith. Contend for the truth of Scripture. Contend for the truth of who Jesus really is, the real Jesus, not the make-believe Jesus. May we be people of God who contend for the faith. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. And Lord, I thank you for these Bible students that you have assembled in this place today. People that have a passion for the word of God. People that who want to contend for the faith. And Lord, I pray that you will put this fire in us to be men and women of courage, men and women of honor, men and women that never, ever quit, men and women that know that Jesus is always, always with us. Oh, God, help us to accomplish. Help us to be the ones that this generation is called to defend the faith for. We want to contend the faith while we're here. We want to be, we want to be found faithful when it's our time to pass on. We don't want to frivolously give our lives away. We don't want to just be in frivolity in, in all the things that the world brings us into. But help us to be grounded in you, Lord. This is a great life. It's a great life. There's so many good things, Lord, that you 
that you have put before us. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, the flowers boom, the hummingbirds come. You have such order and such structure and such beauty. But in the midst of it, there is the fall and there's the awfulness. And these are the things we have to struggle against. We have to keep our own spirit strong. And Father, we have to help other people on this journey to know the true God who loves them and has prepared a place for them. Thank you for this time to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.